everybody, it's Liz Jones, also known as Ethically Elizabeth on Instagram, and I am hanging out with SoFlo Vegans. And welcome back to another episode of the SoFlo Vegans podcast. I'm your host and founder of SoFlo Vegans, Sean Russell. In this episode, we speak with Liz Jones, who is a passionate animal rights activist and marine biologist. Also returning as our co-host is our media coordinator, Alba Mendez. This episode of the SoFlo Vegans podcast is brought to you by the Plant Chicks 30 Day Challenge. Ditch the diet and get on a sustainable lifestyle. Take the Plant Chicks 30 Day Challenge and learn how to eat plant-based, reduce inflammation, gain more energy, protect genes against chronic illness and diseases, think clearer and improve the aging process. Go to soflowvegans.com slash plant-chicks for more information about their 30-day challenge and to learn more about this amazing community. Also, remember to leave a review and subscribe to our show by going to soflowvegans.com slash podcast. Your support will help us reach more people and aid in our mission of making South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. Stay tuned to the end of this podcast to hear more about exciting things going on with SoFlo Vegans and how you can show your support. So with that being said, enjoy our conversation with Liz Jones on the SoFlo Vegans podcast. You are listening to the SoFlo Vegans podcast. And welcome back to another exciting episode of the SoFlo Vegans podcast. Ah, coming to Frog Hill. Hey, we're a great time. We are here with our co-host for this episode. We have... Hey guys, it's Alba. How's everybody? It's Alba. And Alba, as always, I'm giving you the honor of introducing our amazing guest for this episode. We have a special treat for everybody today. I know we've actually gotten requests for this. None other than Liz Jones, one awesome activist. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Yeah, I'm and excited. We have to mention that this episode is sponsored by none other than Leaves and Roots. Leaves and Roots, Mass District. Check it out. We're doing a lot of cool events with them. So depending on when you're listening to this episode, check out our website to see if you can come hang with us. And with that being said, let's jump right into it and get your vegan origin story, Liz. All right. How did you become a vegan? All right. Well, I feel like it's one of those things where it's like instilled in a lot of us, right, from a really young age. Um, I always felt a deep connection to the natural world, to animals, but of course, like many other people, didn't make the ethical connection for a while. Um, but when I was a kid, I lived in like a pretty predominantly farmland area. So there was a lot of hunting that took place around my house. Um, I remember even as a kid putting up no hunting signs in the forest. I used to go and like destroy the traps where they would catch the uh, groundhogs. And um, I actually did my eighth grade big report in front of all of the auditorium in my class on animal testing. So I was kind of always in there, always loved my animals. We always had a bunch of cats. My mom and um, I would rescue some of the stray dogs and cats that were in the area. Um, but it wasn't until I was in high school when I kind of made that connection with the food. And I went pescatarian. It was a slow transition. I didn't have like Instagram back then. There weren't a lot of these resources that are available now. but. Um, Basically, fast forward a few, a couple years later, and I was actually in Italy walking through a fish market, and I had a little bit too much to drink the night before, and I was so repulsed by the smell of the fish that it actually turned me straight there to vegetarian. And then I looked a bit more into the ethical side of things, and um, and then fast forward another about year and a half, and I was actually doing a summer program in the Turks and Caicos on a small island. It's about eight square miles called South Caicos. And um, I met a real world vegan. I had never met one of those before. Um, she told me about the milk and the dairy and egg industries and I learned a little bit more from her. She shared her nutritional yeast with me, which was a bonding moment. And um, from there, I never looked back. And so I've been an ethical vegan since. So when you were that eighth grader yeah. in that auditorium, uh -huh. terrified. What made you, you know, like, I know you had animals and you were surrounded by animals, but what was there like a moment? Can you point, pinpoint it to a particular event that made you say, okay, something's not right here? 
I don't think it was a specific event. I would attribute a lot of my compassion towards my mom. Um, she was the person that if we were driving past like an old field that was becoming developed would cry because it was taking up the deer habitat. Um, still, she's not fully vegan. She's not, she didn't like uh, inspire that change in me, but it was always deeply instilled to have um, an appreciation towards animals. So I think just, it was a natural progression for me. Um, I just think I always wanted to protect them. I just didn't realize that by eating them and wearing them and exploiting them, I was also hurting them actively. It, so from that moment, that's when you decided to become a, um, was it that you were telling us a marine biologist? So I actually was inspired to become a marine biologist. Like most people, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I was going to school um, in undergrad for environmental sustainability and conservation biology. So I always knew I wanted to work with animals or the natural world in some way. Um, had no clue what I wanted to do with that degree. Didn't really ever foresee what would have come from that. Um, but I did a summer program in the Turks and Caicos and it was really heavy into um, marine conservation and marine ecology. And so I left that summer knowing that I wanted to pursue marine biology and then I started applying to grad school and that's what brought me down here. Um, so I've been down here for about six and a half years post-grad school. Yeah. Where did you go to school? University of Miami's uh, Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. It's a tongue twister. So as a marine biologist who concentrates on conservation, how does that apply to what you currently do as an activist? Sure. Um, so it's actually really interesting. I came down here as a vegan. I wasn't what I would consider myself a traditional activist at that time, but I kind of imagined that a lot of my classmates and peers would be really forward thinking in the same sort of you know, mentality towards animals and conservation. And shockingly, that wasn't the case, um, unfortunately. A lot of scientists and conservationists still do contribute to the exploitation and oppression of animals, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> but I think from seeing that firsthand, and even in some of the science, um, you are exploiting animals. Um, it made me just pursue the activism sphere even more. So my campus actually was located adjacent to the Miami Sea Aquarium. So it was one of the first places I started to do activism. Um, I would rollerblade or bike past this aquarium. I had no idea what it was. And then I started noticing these crazy people outside with signs and with mega megaphones. And um, I had no clue. I actually was probably made fun of them at one point. Um, a lot of those people are now my friends. But um, it really just changed my perspective. Um, it was, like I said, a gradual transition. But yeah, once I became uh, motivated to become an activist, I never looked back. And um, always looking at ways that I can help more and more and learn. Yeah. That's actually very interesting because I remember, even as a vegan, because I've been vegan now for 12 years, but I really didn't do activism until about a year ago. And I used to pass by my school thinking, like, wow, these people are doing awesome stuff. Yay. Right. And then it kind of, it's funny how you now have done, I know you've protested for Lolita before, you've raised awareness just like we have. When right. we did the march for Lolita with other local activists like Alejandro Dentino, mm -hmm. he's been like Lolita supporter for like for months on end. He goes every weekend right. to protest. Yeah. I find that very interesting. It's like how we are all connected one way or the other. And then speaking of protest, I remember um, the, one of the first times that I, I met you was at the march. Yeah. Uh, in 2017, I believe. Yeah. And just to see your passion and how the community comes together with a, with a single purpose. And that was an eye opening experience for me. That was my first time yeah. in that sort of situation. Yeah, that was a great march. Um, so, yeah. you know, just be able to see you continue that and to see the progression of right. it. Not even just you, but just the community as a whole. Right. Seeing what's possible. It's, totally. You know, so on that note, what would you say? You, you, you touched on it a little bit when you're rollerblading past. <laughs> the perception from a lot of people, especially the people who aren't part of this community, and right. they really don't like the inner workings of why people do what they do. Right. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that perception? I totally understand it. Um, I think especially seeing that at one point and even being a self-identifying vegan and having that perception about people who are doing activism. I think there's a lot of people who um, consider themselves vegan or plant-based, but they are anti-activism. Um, and I think I can understand that, but I also think it's really harmful because we all right, have our purpose. Um, you may be good at something that I'm not good at, and um, we all can contribute to the movement in different ways. But I think 
um, just having a better understanding and maybe thinking, why are they so passionate instead of thinking, why are they so crazy? Um, so it's taking a step back and really understanding it because we wouldn't be thinking that people are eccentric or over the top if the roles were reversed and we were the victims. So I try to step back and think of that, but I also can see from a critical standpoint how some forms of activism do not bode well with the general community and even some people that identify as being vegan. What are some of those? Sure. Um, I think something that I have specifically gotten a lot of um, negative feedback for before is um, direct action style, so disruptions, um, which could range from going to an actual slaughterhouse and shutting down um, the slaughter line for the day, or walking into a restaurant and disrupting people's meals, and of course it makes people very uncomfortable. Um, but ultimately, if we were in the reversed role, we would want somebody doing that for us. So I think. Um, even if you don't agree with some forms of, act, forms of activism, which I don't agree with all forms of activism either, I think it's important to at least be open-minded and maybe question it, look at the historical context, how is it effective in other movements, other social justice movements, um, and civil disobedience and disruptions were successful in many other different social justice movements. I think the argument that, for example, like you just mentioned, that you stop the, the slaughter for the day is that, well, the slaughter is not going to stop tomorrow. It's not right. going to stop for another month. Right. So what is the difference? Why are you breaking the law to get these animals out just for maybe an hour that you right. stop the conveyor belt from going? That's a good question. Um, I think that the most important thing is, one, getting a lot of media coverage. A lot of people, like you or I, probably were disconnected from the food that's on our plate and the animals that are behind that and the process it takes to get them there. So by exposing the industry, allowing media to come in, that's always one of the um, negotiation terms is typically that you want media access. So then that's exposing the media, the general public that might not be aware of what's happening to see this. Um, it can go further than just the hour. I do understand there's always gonna be um, you know, criticisms, but I think overall it's really important to get people in there and, and to allow them to see what they're ultimately contributing to because those systems only exist because we, the consumer, are paying for them to exist. And that could be because also of speciesism, which can you explain what that is? Sure. So speciesism is similar to um, racism or sexism or albiism. It's basically having the moral superiority. So if you assign more um, importance to a dog over, say, a chicken or a cow, um, whereas if you are anti-speciesist, you believe that all animals um, have their own right to live, um, regardless of what you, uh, what moral importance or what importance or intelligence you specifically assign to them. So breaking down those barriers and treating all animals as equal. And what, what created that? I keep going back to what was that specific moment in time? Tell sure. me now. <laughs> you know, what was that paradigm? Because that's, that's a huge paradigm shift for somebody to tell right. to take, to look at you know, all animals being the same, look at their dog and say, okay, replace that with the cow that I'm eating on my plate. Right. So it sounds like there was this transition period for you. Yes. Did all that happen or was species, species speciesism, I'm going to edit, was that another step for you? Yeah, so I think um, it's a natural progression for a lot of people and activism activists specifically understanding a lot of um, the ideologies because uh, a lot of times, right, we go vegan and whether we identify as an activist or not, we get really passionate about it because we feel like we've been misled, we've been lied to, and so, and I am totally this person as well. When I first became an activist, I didn't read the historical context, I didn't research, and I just was out there fighting, but I didn't really understand speciesism. Um, and it, it is, being an anti-speciesist is different than being a vegan. Um, you understand that everybody is speciesist in some way, right? I don't assign, psychologically, we assign different levels of importance to all animals, an ant versus a chicken, an ant versus a dog, right? But their lives are just as important to them as any of our lives are to us. Just because they might look different or have different functional purposes or be different intelligence levels doesn't mean that they don't value their lives any less. Um, so I think it's 
coming to that understanding and definitely um, seeing how that progresses in within yourself and how you perceive different animals is important. And for someone that's coming who's come to that realization and you know is mindful with right. you know how they treat insects and how they treat all life. Right. What words of advice would you have for them so they know that? I mean, what words of encouragement would you have for them? Because I'm mean, speaking for me myself. Sure. I had a conversation with an animal rights activist you may know, or Susan Arbus. Yep. And I asked her a simple question of, you know, what, and you might be touching on this in a little bit, you know, in the terms of like petting zoos and things of that nature. Right. Uh, why is that bad? I understand zoos, but that, and she said something so simple to me that created that paradigm shift for me. She yeah. Something as simple as put yourself in that position. Right. Now ask yourself that same question. Is that okay? Right. Like, oh, okay, I get it. Boom. Right. But, and, you know, I I do find, you know, like, there's a mosquito or something like that. I'm, like, I'm mindful not to just be the immediate reaction. Right, right. You know, and show it away. But, you know, there I will <clears throat> admit there are times where it's like, okay, if there was a human being coming at me the way you're coming at me. Right. You know, I would have the same response. You right. just happen to be smaller. But, of course, that's... No, but it's a good point for sure. And I think an important thing to remember is that, I mean, I know a lot of hardcore activists that don't even really like animals. Like they're not animal people, but they respect them. And that's ultimately what it's about, right? You don't have to love animals. You don't have to want to be a rescuer. You don't have to want chickens in your backyard, but it's just giving them the respect that you or I want. It's not kicking them or hurting them or exploiting them or oppressing them, not getting anything from them. If we don't want to give anything of ours to somebody else, why would they want to do it? You know, it's like what you just said, just turning the tables. That's fascinating. I never even thought about it like that because you assume that most activists or activist groups, they love animals so much, this is what they're doing. Right. I never really thought about it. Yeah, no, there's a lot of people that don't necessarily have um, a deep connection with animals. They just understand that they don't deserve to be exploited or oppressed. And that's the basic, you know. And I think that point is a strong point because someone, like for me, I'm speaking for myself, I, I really look at animals the same way I look as a human being. Right. I'm not running up to every human being giving them a hug. Right. I, just, you know, <laughs> right. It's, I have a meritocracy on, right. on my connections with living things. Right. At the same time, I'm not going to hurt an animal. I'm not going to right. go out of my way to hurt an insect or what have you. Right. So I see what you're saying. The reason I'm saying that here is because I feel that may create a window for people who who could get on board with that, right? but maybe they're not because they don't feel that affinity towards animals. Right. Sort of like, okay, I can't be an activist because I don't want to have a thousand right. animals living in right. my home. Totally. I get that, and, and I know that not everybody wants that. Um, it's just it's just understanding that they don't deserve to or should be exploited or oppressed. And it's like the same way that you said you don't want to run up to random strangers and give them hugs. Like We shouldn't do that to animals either because they also have their own personal space and I know that a lot of times and I've seen a lot of people do it and I've actually you know looked back at my Instagram and seen that I've done it in the past and it's like calling ourselves out and evolving in this journey right it's how many times are we taking a photo or a selfie with an animal and they don't want to take that photo and it's so forced and it's a form of exploitation like and I can admit that I've done that so I've gone back and I've actually archived a lot of my old posts that I know that the animal wasn't uncomfortable or anything, but I just don't like the way it seems forced. You know, it's the selfie culture and it's another way that we're kind of um, perpetuating this ideology that animals are here for us. Um, and I think Instagram and social media has done a really bad, um, it's been a bad thing for animals in that sense where people are always looking for the new cool selfie, the new profile picture. And a lot of times it's with wild animals, it's inspiring people to want to have them as companions. Wild animals, for example, like big cats or even skunks, raccoons, opossums. So um, yeah, it's constantly like checking yourself and saying, wait, is this for my benefit or is this for theirs? Like, are we taking something from them that's not consensual? I'm glad that you brought that up because I opened up our Instagram for questions about activism when I announced that we were going to have you on the podcast. So that is one of the questions, many of the questions actually, that we've gotten of what makes a sanctuary a true quote-unquote sanctuary because it's a good question. you touch and pet them. Right. 
So I think it's important, one, to differentiate between a farm animal sanctuary, a domesticated sanctuary or rescue. Um, a farm animal sanctuary, right, is animals that come from typically the animal agriculture industry, slaughterhouses of that nature. They're domesticated, so they're not necessarily wild animals where we don't want to have contact with them because it jeopardizes their survivability in the wild. However, they still don't necessarily want you to pet them, to take photos with them. Um, so I always say, one, there should always be an orientation at a sanctuary to um, go over boundaries, go over photos, go over the behavior of each animal and how they may react to you being in their personal space. Um, it's always important to be cautious with that and be respectful of them, just like we'd be respectful of one another. Um, so farm animal sanctuary is a bit different. I, I know a big thing now with social media, it's been a craze to get like selfies with sloths and all these wild animals. And I always tell people that if you're gonna go to a wildlife sanctuary or rehab, they're probably not, you wanna look, first look into their accreditation, but they're probably not a legitimate sanctuary if they're letting you hold animals, such as a sloth. Some of these animals are very stress-induced around people. Um, a legitimate wildlife rehabilitation center would never let you have indirect, um, in direct contact with a wild animal, especially if they're gonna be released, and that's ultimately the goal of a rehab. Um, say if it's something like an ambassador animal who cannot be released, they're there for the rest of their life, they have enrichment, um, they have their their life instead of being euthanized, and they're friendly and they love they love people and they're used to human contact. Then that's a different story. But it's there should always be clear boundaries. Um, it depends what kind of sanctuary it is. You should always do your research. And again, if they're letting you take selfies, hold animals, it's probably not a legitimate uh, sanctuary rehab. Some of these big cats, especially we were discussing earlier um, in Asia. Many of these big cats or other wild animals are actually getting drugged, so they yep. are able to take the picture. Yeah, so Nat Geo just did a really good piece actually on wildlife tourism and how exploitative it is. A lot of times in Southeast Asia and certain parts of Central America, animals are actually being drugged so that people can get in with them in captivity and take these photos with them. Now, with that comes a million different risks and nightmare situations. Um, it poses a health risk for the animal, of course, as well as the people that are potentially in harm's way. A lot of times you'll see also um, people in Southeast Asia will have photos with baby monkeys. And often what happens is the poachers will actually kill the mothers and then they take the babies and they hand rear them so that they're used to human contact and then they exploit them for their whole life and have them in chains so that people can take selfies for $5 or whatever it may be with them. So it's always important when you're traveling to be mindful of that. Um, and I think most people can tell if it's a legitimate place. I think if you're smart and you know that it, it's ultimately not the animal's best interest at heart, it's probably pretty obvious, right? Now, is there some sort of oversight um, for these sanctuaries where someone can go if they're not sure? Sure, so there's some good websites out there. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I know um, one organization, Animal Connection, um, it might be animalconnection.org or .com. They have a list of sanctuaries. There's a couple other vegan websites that have um, really good recommendations for farm animal sanctuaries. You'll even see some farm animal sanctuaries that are actually run by non-vegans and who um, serve animal products there. And so you have to be wary of that too. So even just saying, oh, I wanna go to a farm animal sanctuary, you have to be careful of some of the places you're giving your money and donations, because some of them aren't even accredited nonprofits. So always just doing your homework, see if they have their 501c3 status, see if it's pending, um, check them out on social media, see what kind of behavior they're doing, see their fundraisers, if they're serving animal products at the fundraisers for animals, probably not great. Um, in terms of wildlife rehabilitation centers, you can usually tell um, a wildlife rehab's always main goal is to rehab and release the animals. So if you're seeing baby animals in captivity that people are taking photos with or something of that nature, definitely a red flag. Um, that means that they're breeding in captivity and not releasing, and that's obviously a no-go. That's not a good thing. Um, so just looking at some of the signs like that, and there's some great websites now and blogs where you can look, but Southeast Asia specifically um, with elephants and big cats and um, other large animals, it's been a big, tick, uh, big ticket topic recently because it's a huge form of exploitation and a lot of people are now going to these areas to specifically do that to get the new selfie or you know that experience that they're craving to have that contact with animals. Maybe they're not a bad person, they just really love animals, but if you really love animals, you should have their best interest at heart. So always going that extra step and checking out blogs and different accredited sites and making sure they have those certifications is important. 
Does that also include, because I, speaking from experience, my dream has always been to ride an elephant. Yeah. I haven't done it because never the opportunity, but now I'm kind of in a way glad because yeah. even to get this animal to get ridden, right. they either drug them or they train them very harshly. Right. So in a way, but for somebody who was like me, that their whole dream was to do that. Right. Essentially, that is offering for you to ride the elephant. Yeah, no go. Yeah. So I would say in terms of the elephant stuff, those are some of the most controversial because there are a lot that are actually called like the elephant sanctuary, things of that nature. Um, if they're allowing people to ride them, definitely not accredited. Um, that means that those animals have endured serious, brutal, harsh um, training throughout their young adult life. They use bull hooks. They hit them. There's a lot of really cruel footage online. What is a bullhook? <clears throat> so it's a long... Um, almost like a pole with a hook on the end. It's what they use in um, to train for circuses. And basically they use it to jab and hit the elephants. Um, it's extremely painful, but they use it from the time they're very young and it just conditions them. So that's how you see them on these balls, on, the, on their hind legs and doing really unnatural things they'd never do in the wild. Um, so definitely if there's any riding in at all, because just riding animals in general is exploitative, um, always ask yourself if, the animal would want to be doing that if you weren't making them do that, right? That's like a pretty good rule of thumb. Um, but definitely there's some good blogs about the animal sanctuaries and the elephant sanctuaries. And I know there are some accredited ones that you can go and volunteer. You can help feed, clean their habitats um, and have really amazing, rewarding opportunities and experience with, experiences with them. And it goes back to the sanctuary and ultimately helps provide for their care. And I, and I know throughout the years, a lot of this, a lot of what you've been talking about and describing has come to light because Absolutely. of some powerful undercover work yes. that happened. So yep. can you tell us a little bit about um, sure. undercover work in terms of... Sure. Um, so undercover work is really important. It's not glamorous um, to any degree, but thankfully because of people who do put themselves out there, like some of the um, photographers and videographers who have discovered these things um, and gone undercover over, overseas and even um, domestically, is that, you know, it's exposing it. It's out there on social media. It exists. People are learning about it. Um, the woman who recently did a large series for Nat Geo, it was all about wildlife um, tourism. I think there was a uh, trafficking portion of that as well. Um, another huge industry. It's up there with the drug trade in terms of the overall dollar um, amount that it's worth, the industry. But yeah, a lot of the hardcore work that goes into this is um, bringing these issues to light and it's allowing us to speak about them and hopefully within the next five to 10 years, we'll continue to see this being um, brought to justice where um, certain countries now are outlawing zoos, are outlawing circus performances with animals. We're still a little behind in the States, surprisingly, but um, I we're getting there slowly but surely. Um, so it is important and for sure it's, it's bringing really important issues that have been going on for years without um, any publicity to light and getting the animals some justice. One of the things I've seen, and I'm sure you can support me with this, is that yes, it's, there's progress, but I feel like for every step we go, we take two steps back with yes. legislation and right. you know, laws being put into place to right. make it almost impossible to do things um, you're definitely right with that. I feel like um, everything's really slow moving. So even when we do pass new laws that are protective of animals, um, it does usually take a few years to roll out. Um, there's always loopholes. It seems any business that's very profitable, there's always going to be people that are making so much money that they have enough influence to find a way around it. But hopefully, um, you know, we'll just continue to progress. It's it's a tough it's tough to say because I'm constantly learning of new ways that people do exploit and oppress animals. Um, so I people always ask me if I'm hopeful. I don't necessarily consider myself a hopeful person, but I, it doesn't mean I'm not going to work. It just inspires me and motivates me to work harder. Um, but I do hope that um, some of the technologies we have nowadays with drone footage and satellite imagery and things of that nature will help us um, protect animals going forward. So some of these methods, the laws that you've mentioned that goes again with another question that we've had because there was a big uh, story done on social media about agag. Am I saying that correct? Yes. The agag versus non-agag um, sure. laws. Yeah, so there's a few states still in the United States um, that do have ag-gag laws, and basically that prohibits undercover activists, whistleblowers from 
going in and filming in factory farms, slaughterhouses, any of these um, big money-making industries. And ultimately, you can be punished to the extreme amount of um, felony convictions, massive fines, slap you with jail time, simply for going in and exposing animal cruelty and sharing that with the general public. So, um, for example, Iowa and North Carolina, both states that I have done undercover work in, um, you have to be very careful when it comes to exposing this stuff and putting it out there, not sharing locations, not sharing um, specific farms or exploitative facilities because you can really seek huge penalties and these companies have more money than anybody can even imagine. Companies like Smithfield where they have legal teams that could fight you forever. Right now, based on the research that I've done, like you mentioned already, North Carolina, Wyoming, mm -hmm. Idaho, Missouri, Utah, and Iowa are some of the states that have these laws. Yes. But that's pretty much farm country. Yeah, so it's big agricultural um, meccas. They are typically, a majority of the economy comes from these industries. Um, it's not a diversified economy, so that's the biggest thing, right? You're taking, a, you're taking a giant blow to the industries that are making the majority of the people in that state a lot of money. Um, there's a lot of laws that protect these people. The politicians ultimately receive money from those industries. That's another big thing. Um, when we did a big... Um, vigil a couple years ago at North in North Carolina outside That's of where the biggest pig, uh, yeah farm yeah is. so so they have um, a slaughterhouse there Smithfield owns it yeah. they kill approximately 33,000 pigs a day at this one facility and um, it's massive and there ended up being a massive altercation there basically the state troopers who and local PD um, they have ties to the industry. A lot of them have friends and family that work for them. So it got really tumultuous and actually ended up in some physical altercations between um, activists and police officers. But it just goes to show you there's a very aggressive mentality between the local people and activists because they see us as attacking them and their their livelihood. Their right, their way of their life. Right, their way of life, right, culture, right, and right. And many of them don't have any understanding of other opportunities their grandfather and their grandfather's grandfather, they are just, they're just born into the system and there's no other job opportunities there. So it's um, unfortunately, we need to diversify that. And I have seen some successful conversions from um, specifically chicken farms to mushrooms. And I, there's a great program, the Rancher, Rancher um, Advocacy Program. That is with uh, Rowdy Girl. Yeah, with Rowdy Girl. So hopefully more programs like that will transition people um, but for now, it's still a really tumultuous time to be an undercover investigator, and um, yeah, it's, you can potentially face some serious jail time. And you've gone undercover multiple times. How is it that you get <clears throat> recognized, especially with your face being on social media? So most of the time, the undercover work I do is very rural. Um, people don't, I dress the part, I look the part, I go in, I'm buddy-buddy with these people, I laugh, I smile. You see it all, but you have to just act like it doesn't phase you. So there's no red flags. Um, you have to go in there with that mentality, whether it's being at a slaughterhouse or going undercover at a farm. It depends on the on the situation, but there's always different codes of conduct depending on the situation. Obviously, when you go undercover at a farm at night, you don't want anybody to see you. So hopefully, they're not seeing you. Either you're covering your face. Um, you're taking proper security measures and being safe in that regard. How do you handle that? Because when you know that you're there to save animals and behind you because you're trying to get this footage and this undercover work that you do and they're killing them left and right. A lot of times when I do undercover work, I don't have the goal of saving animals. It's purely to capture the footage and um, hope that we can potentially capture something that would be prosecutable or be able to get them in trouble um, ultimately. But it is hard for sure to go in and know that you're leaving them all behind. And even if you can take one or two, um, you're leaving potentially 100,000 plus behind. It's really tough for sure. Now that we're talking about the undercover work, there's obviously the ones that you don't do undercover work that yes, you can film, you can take footage. Right. And recently uh, we had a conversation when we saw you about a month ago that you were going to New York for this, is, is it a festival or a religious festival? Um, so Kaporos is... Kaporos. So it's part of Yom Kippur, traditional Jewish um, holiday. It's the atonement. It's a holiday where they practice atonement for the sins that they have um, accrued throughout the year. It's typically, by and large, a peaceful holiday. Um, it involves, you know, repentance and um, 
being with family and friends, but in a small faction of um, very um, conservative Hasidic Jewish people, very small faction um, throughout the country and the world, but specifically in pockets throughout Brooklyn, because there's a large Hasidic population, um, they do use live chickens. Um, so typically the ritual can be used, um, the ritual can be practiced using coins and the same exact um, ritual is used and then the money is actually donated to charity. But for this small faction, um, they use live birds. So it involves um, this whole ritual where the practitioners take the bird, they swing them around their head three times and they say a prayer and then you're essentially transferring your sins into the bird and then you're handing the bird off to um, another religious member of the community, and then they're slaughtering them in the streets in these makeshift slaughterhouses. So, in front of everybody? In front of everybody. So I was there over um, Kaporos this last year. It happens every year during Kaporos, um, during Yom Kippur, rather. And um, it's estimated anywhere between 50,000 to 100,000 chickens in Brooklyn are killed each year there in these makeshift slaughterhouses. Um, everyone from babies to unborn babies, small children, mothers, their entire families, everyone um, sacrifices a chicken for living and unborn children as well as adults. So it's really gruesome. But what happens to the slaughtered chicken? So they, <clears throat> they say that the chickens are donated to charity and that's kind of how it's justified that they're taking something and they are donating this chicken that's a you know, um, inherited the sins of them, but we have documented by and large, especially this last year, that actually all of the chickens are picked up by waste management and are thrown away in the garbage. Um, and waste management is responsible for picking them up. Won't that be a health hazard? So it actually breaks over 10 public health violations. Um, it's been, the concerns have been raised to the city public health. The concerns have fallen on deaf ears. It's been, um, a lot of Jewish members of the community have come out and spoke against a lot of rabbis because you can use this alternative form of, they call it kind Kaporos. Um, there's an alliance to end chickens in Kaporos. There's a lot of organizations that are run by um, vegan Jewish members of the community. And so they are trying to work with them to transition because like you said, it breaks health code violations. It puts the public at risk. Um, chickens have all sort, can have all sorts of diseases. They can transfer to us. There's blood, there's anything you can imagine going into the streets and directly into the sewer drains, putting a lot of people at risk. It's obviously putting the animals at risk. They sit in these crates for upwards of five to seven days in all sorts of weather before um, being subjected to this ritual. It's really gruesome. So because you, if this does touch on religion, right? It's, and I'm sure there's a level of difficulty there right. to get things changed. So right. in the activism that's been happening, different coalitions that have come together, is there a goal in terms of if this happens, if this tipping point happens, we'll see some sort of result? Or is it right now just, you know, trying to bring as much awareness as possible and then figuring it out as we go? Um, I think it's recently become more publicized. I specifically, I didn't know about it until two and a half years ago at the Animal Rights Conference. Um, somebody who I've actually since done undercover work with exposed this, I was exposed to it through him. Um, so I think there's still a lot of people even in the vegan community that are unaware of it. So it comes with, yeah, so it comes with a lot of education is definitely needed. Um, but the change is not going to come from me and it's not going to come from anybody else in the vegan community. It's going to come from the Jewish community and from these rabbis who are specifically telling their community members that, hey, we don't have to do this. There's alternative ways to do it. And some of them actually were publicly um, speaking about this in this past year because there was a really good short documentary um, by an activist named Unparalleled Suffering. Um, and you should you could definitely link it to this um, if people are interested to learn more about the ritual itself. And it's actually an inspiring story about a chicken they save um, who had his neck slit and was found in a trash bag and made this amazing recovery and now lives a wonderful life at a sanctuary. But um, it's just through, it's through education within our community, but also working in partnership because it's not, like I said, going to come from our community. It's going to be coming from the change within. And you also do not want to come across as uh, anti-Semitic exactly. or speaking out against right. religious practice. Right. Um, we did uh, a podcast with the founder of ARM with Animal Recovery right. and they also go 
to parts of Sri Lanka, parts of Asia, right. where you see all these massive slaughtering of cows, for example, right. as well. So it's not only the Jewish population, well, not all Jewish, excuse me, but a certain a small group in the Hasidic that they do this. Right. But there's also other religions and other um, groups that do any other type of animal sacrifice. Right, and it's, it's like I said, it's not an attack at any specific religious group or community. Nobody has an, an issue with the actual practice, the religious practice itself. It's the use of chickens with that practice. So I would never... There is another option. And there's another option. So I would never want to come across and say to somebody, don't practice your religion or anything of that nature. Um, I stood beside a lot of fellow um, activists who were Jewish and grew up celebrating Yom Kippur and they were unaware of these traditions as well and that's why they come out and they speak to the community members because they can say, listen, I've been doing this, I am Jewish and I don't have to do this. We can have, there's other kinder ways to do it. And it's similar with um, other religious practices like Santeria where you could sacrifice, um, you know, other non-animal sacrifices. There's always an alternative. We shouldn't be exploiting animals for our own personal gain regardless of relief, religious belief. And it's not only religious, but another of the questions that we have to, is breeders and even quote unquote responsible breeders for our companions like our dogs and cats. Absolutely. So it's just in, in like another form of exploitation where we are taking animals who are being forcibly impregnated or say we're even being unresponsible and we're not spaying and neutering them and then they're running off, they're getting pregnant and it's ultimately just contributing to this larger issue. Um, when we have 1.5 million shelter animals each year, cats and dogs, that's conservative. In shelters alone that are being euthanized, why would we bring new animals onto this? Is that only in the US? That's just in the United States. So that's a number that's actually significantly declined. I believe the figure was 2.6 million in 2011. So it is coming down because there's more ad advocacy for rescue. Um, it's becoming like kind of cool to have a rescue animal, but it's just, we don't need to breed animals for eating them. We don't need to breed them for our companionship or for them to look a certain way. There's breed specific rescues. If you want a Schnauzer, if you want a Doberman, a Pipple, Come to me, I will find you any dog, cat, animal that you could ever imagine because there's no need to do it. Um, this quote unquote responsible breeder thing, I've heard it time and time again. I've even heard it used in the rescue community. And ultimately it's putting the idea out there that there's a good way to do something bad and we shouldn't be looking for other ways to profit off of or exploit animals. We don't need to do it. It's plain and simple in my eyes. Is that the same thing as humane meat? It's similar, I would say, yeah, because it's, you know, ultimately you're, they're making an animal do something that they won't, don't want to do. And I can assure you that a mother dog or a mother cat does not want to have eight cats or puppies. It is a lot of work and it puts a strain on their body. Um, always spay and neuter your companions. It's super important. It's better for their health. It's obviously better for the environment. Um, so definitely always rescue. And one of the things that's always crossed my mind, especially before I became vegan, actually now wasn't even on my mind when, before I was vegan, full disclosure, um, pets. Right. What are, what are your ideas on the thoughts of having pets? So this is an interesting, I've actually heard a lot of um, quarreling back and forth on the wonderful Facebook where all things uh, conflict-based are discussed. But... Um, so the thing with companion animals, I believe um, we should always adopt. If you are purchasing or um, funding new animals being born onto the planet, I don't think that's a good thing regardless. Um, however, if you are taking an animal who is suffering on the street or going to be euthanized in a shelter, I can assure you that they prefer that than to be euthanized or to suffer um, and anguish, you know. Um, I always advocate for people to open their homes if they're interested in having a companion, but at the same time, you have to be a responsible um, parent and companion to them. You shouldn't just get an animal because you are lonely or because your boyfriend broke up with you or to give somebody a Christmas gift. That's never a good idea. Their circumstances have to be right. You need to be there for them. Um, you shouldn't have a dog in a crate for 12 hours a day. So, Yes, I would say that I absolutely encourage people to adopt animals and give them a better life, but it shouldn't be to their detriment. So always have their interests um, in mind. And you foster a lot of animals, like yeah. especially kittens. I yeah. see you with a little cat yeah. or, or anything like that. I'm like, I, me personally, I'm allergic, so I can't have any cats. But yeah. I can say that all of my pets have been 
either found on the streets as strays, so I got them from the Humane Society. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so I've noticed you said companion animal. Yeah. So is that is that a, a, a conscious choice in terms of language and yes. not saying pets and using companion animals? Yes. So I think it's really, that's a great question. Um, so I'm really conscious about my language that I use. I It's something that I always wasn't conscious of, but I have read a lot of books and um, have talked to some other activists who have brought a lot of this stuff to my attention. And I feel like um, another really important thing is being conscious of not saying it when we refer to animals. It just gives them more personhood. And I think it, um, it, people respect them more when we refer to them as these things, so it's always important. I kind of you kind of have to check yourself. It takes some getting used to because it's a habit to use these words. But um, yes, it's something that I consciously choose to use instead of the term pet. Will you be okay if I because I call my my babies babies? No, that's fine. That's okay. I call my babies because babies I, too. I, get, I also get criticized. That's not a baby. That is an animal. I'm like, well, to me, they're your baby. They're my baby. Yeah, no, for sure. Okay. My babies are my babies too. No, this wasn't a crude question. Here. <laughs> I, I, I know you can, I know you'll be all right with it. So I see a lot of people have registered companion animals okay. with them. That's they, a good question. They can bring them into right, right. You know, an airplane mm -hmm. or different places. What are your thoughts on, on that? This is a great question. It's come up a lot recently in the activism sphere um, regarding um, therapy animals. Or I seeing dogs. I dogs. Um, so I think it's complicated. I don't take the approach that some people do in saying that, you know, I don't believe we should have working dogs. I don't think dogs should go to Afghanistan. I don't think dogs should be forced to the airport for all hours of the day. Um, Registering an animal as an emotional support animal, if the animal is, if that sole purpose is for the animal to come with you places and they enjoy that, I don't specifically have an issue with that. Um, I think purchasing animals from breeders to train them for two to three years, to designate them to be seeing eye dogs or um, other things that they would clearly not choose to do, I think that's a, a touchy subject and that's something to be explored um, because ultimately it's for our personal gain and we're exploiting them. Does that include police dogs as well? Yes. So I definitely don't believe that dogs should be um, in law enforcement because would they be, they're not being compensated. They don't choose to do it. Um, we have alternative officers. We don't need dogs um, to be trained to be in the line of duty. It ultimately puts them at risk. I know that there are benefits to it, but um, I think nowadays we have technologies that can yeah, replace animals. Events. Right. They said their senses are obviously yes, more than right. us. Their sense of smell, something that you cannot get from a machine. Right. So I'm hoping that with technologies, just like with um, animal testing, we'll always evolve and we'll look forward to new um, technologies that can replace animals in those in those spheres. But um, I don't think that I know a lot of people, especially in South Florida. This is a topic that's always coming up in the rescue world. Is um, I see in the groups every day. I need to surrender my dog. I need to surrender my cat, and they are being, you know, they're being forced to move for one reason or the other. And as a result, their new apartment or condo is not letting them have dogs of a specific um, breed or of a specific weight. So people will go and register their animals as emotional support animals. Now, there's obviously um, issues with both sides because then it takes away from people who might legitimately need to register the animals for therapy or for comfort. Um, but it's it's a we could fall into like an hour long discussion on it. But I would say as long as the animal is not being um, exploited or um, doing stuff against their will, I don't really have a problem with it. And I, I think you added another powerful question to my arsenal. Yeah. One being, if you put yourself in that position, would that be right. okay? Right. The other being, would that would the would that would be doing that on their own? Right. So if you. Ask yourself those two questions in right. regards to our just our conversation we just had right, right now. It's a pretty clear answer, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah, it's complicated, and I I've I can see both sides, but I definitely don't think that um, animals should be used in a lot of the ways that we do use them today for law enforcement purposes. Yeah. Which speaking of law enforcement, you do get to see some uh, working dogs when sometimes when they do activism. Yeah. Because we've had that when we've gone to do footage and right. they have them there. I mean, it's to keep it's to keep the, the order and, and the law. But um, getting arrested, I know that's a fear that a lot of people have, having a record because they want to 
help the animals, they want to be there for the animals, but then there's always that fear of getting arrested, of being manhandled, right. and then ultimately having a record and right. affecting your future. Right. So I personally haven't actually been officially detained or arrested. Um, I'm not, it's not because I've tried to evade the law. Um, obviously it's like, I am happy to not have to pay a ton of fines and legal fees, um, but it's something that I feel is sometimes a necessary evil, but I don't think everybody should put themselves in that position. There's um, people whose entire livelihoods could be affected by being arrested and having a criminal record. Um, it puts some people at a disadvantage for getting housing. I know, especially in South Florida, there's background checks and it's a very rigorous process. Um, people who have families who are putting their financial freedom at risk. Um, but I think there are people who are more privileged and have the ability to do that. And I think that it's an important part of progressing the movement because we will ultimately have to press the legal boundaries to make change legally speaking. Um, and to get the media coverage we sometimes need. Um, but they are making, in, especially in Australia, I don't know if you've seen some of the um, legal, it's like a revolution basically of their legal system in terms of prosecuting animal rights activists and whistleblowers. So they're going through this whole thing right now where before you could do these mass lockdowns and shut down slaughterhouses and go into farms and there was basically no legal repercussions. It was a slap on the wrist, maybe a fine, a small fine, and now they're looking at prosecutable um, jail time offense um, for offenses like this. So, you know, you have to be cautious. You always have to be aware of um, the local ordinances, the local laws, property boundaries. I'm always aware of that. Um, but like I said, it's, it's weighing um, what the efficacy of being arrested would ultimately do for your goal. Some people serve more of a purpose on the outside, um, but <clears throat> obviously there's always times when being arrested could potentially um, further your goal. In the history of activism, some of the biggest activism movements, Martin Luther King with the civil rights movement, the suffragist movement for women's right. right to vote, many of these women and men and um, African Americans were jailed right. and had a criminal record. I think the Dr. King did have a criminal yep. record for getting arrested. Yes. I mean, that moved... The, right. uh, the civil rights movement forward, for example. Right. Yeah, and so civil dis disobedience was used by the, civil, um, by the um, civil rights movement, suffragettes. So just something as simple as peaceful civil, civil disobedience can be met with really harsh, um, forceful action by police and can ultimately result in jail time or arrest. But it is something that we've seen was successful in the, those movements. So um, it's pushing the needle to get where we need to be and exposing these industries and showing people what people are willing to do and put on the line for these changes to be made. And that's an important um, aspect of that. My boyfriend always laughs at me because since I started doing activism, like um, for Anonymous for the Voiceless or taking videos of, of marches or anything like that, he's like, if you get arrested, we need to start having like a get Alba out of jail <laughs> jail fund. Yeah. So he started putting like five dollars aside or any extra money. He's like, just in case you get arrested, we yeah. have bail money for you. Yeah. It's it's actually smart though to you know understand the legal risks associated with actions because. Like we've seen with time and time again with uh, photo footage from people's phones, you can be arrested for something as simple as a traffic stop nowadays. It's happening all the time, especially if you're a person of color. So it's knowing ultimately what legal risks you are taking, not being arrogant or ignorant to those, and understanding that there is a risk and to be prepared for that. Because if you're not prepared, if you're getting arrested and you can't pay for legal fees or your, um, your bond or your, your um, bail money, you're putting yourself and potentially your loved ones in a really tricky spot. So it's important to weigh all those things. Pretty much you have to be smart. Right. So speaking of that, how can you protect yourself if you're going to be an activist or you're going to go undercover or careful of the repercussions? Sure. So that's a good question because I've seen a lot of um, people now are motivated by some of the other actions and activists that have been doing some of these undercover um, actions and, ac and activities and investigations. And while it's great, sometimes it's, um, done by people who are more passion-driven than intelligence-driven, and they don't really think things through, so they're putting um, photo content and tagging, geotagging locations, and it's always important to, one, if you are going on investigations, uh, always protect your identity. Use apps like Signal to um, protect yourself so that the cops can't trace your whereabouts or trace um, your text message history. Always delete your text message history through those apps. 
don't use things like Google Maps that trace them and it's basically like, here you go, like this is all the places I've been. Um, using different search engines other than Google that are anonymous, that do not um, generate a geolocation for you. Um, using biosecurity, using facial um, disguises. There's so many things that you can do and just in doing an action, preparing properly, looking up um, local laws, understanding the repercussions. So it's having some common sense goes a long way. And it sounds like having good intentions could ultimately lead to major repercussions for not just you, but other people involved. Yeah. So having that, you know, knowing what you're getting yourself into right. is key. And another thing that's really important going um, along with that is if you are going to do a rescue, an open rescue, go to a farm, say I take some chickens out, and then I'm posting them all over my social media, and then I also go and post the sanctuary where they're going to. Now you're ultimately risking those chickens being taken, you're risking the sanctuary's um, nonprofit status, you could get them uh, legal repercussions as well, fines, and you could go to jail. And all of that would be for nothing, and you're putting animals at risk. So it's being smart, um, you know, not tying rescues to sanctuaries where those animals go. There's so many things to consider like that. And you should never do a rescue without having a place for that animal to go, a good home, um, have money set aside for the sanctuary. These sanctuaries rely on donations. These animals have massive vet bills, um, lifetime of feed and other things that we have to consider. So there's so many things to consider when you're going to go to a rescue or go do an investigation. You have to be prepared. Yeah. So you can just go there willy-nilly. Right. So we, we touched on a lot of subjects. Well, one of the subjects that I know comes up, I've spoken to a lot of people, is burnout. Yeah. So how do you personally combat, you know, getting burned out? Not even just from having, not getting to do it, but also just the negativity that you, you know, you absorb from, right. from the people that are protesting, are, are coming up against you, from seeing the treat, mistreatment of the animals. What do you personally do to combat that? It's a good question. Um, I always try to not balance it out, but integrate some positive animal interactions with that, um, whether it be with my foster cats or my resident cats at my home, um, going to a local sanctuary, going to the wildlife rehab where I work, or volunteer, and you know, seeing those animals in a positive setting because it, it really, when you're constantly seeing them being exploited and abused and dying or dead, it can really wear down your, your psyche and your, your personal happiness. And um, it's really important to see the other side of that. And that's why I really like, um, although it can be very challenging and difficult as well, rescue because I can see the success stories associated with some of these underdogs and these animals that really have a, a fighting chance to survive. Um, and the other thing is for me personally, I just can't stop. If I stop, that's when I kind of burn out and I feel really crappy. But if I just stay super busy and just keep going, I feel like that's really the only thing that keeps me going because, um, yeah, it's a slippery slope when you're just sitting around with your thoughts sometimes after that stuff. Can you give us one of those stories of the underdog that you rescued? Yeah. So there is, um, recently when we went to the Bahamas, um, after Hurricane Dorian, there was a little orange cat. Alvin, who is just one of those animals you meet and you're just, he's this very special individual. And um, we found him in one of the shelters that we were working with um, after the hurricane. And at some point of his young life, he had sustained a serious injury to his front and left leg. And um, he was hobbling around in the shelter. They're underfunded. They don't have the resources to get him to proper care. And we ended up bringing him back with us. And um, he was rehabilitated following a, an amputation surgery, and he now lives with the most amazing women um, up in St. Petersburg. I had the opportunity to take him up there myself. They also do rescue. They've got rescue chickens, a bunch of cats, and a dog. Um, so that was a really heartwarming story. It's always nice to just see some of these special needs guys that otherwise wouldn't have a chance to really succeed and have an amazing life. So that was that's a really happy story for me. And we're, we're here in South Florida, so and I, we get messages all the time from people like, you know, we have, we just, you just found, a, you know, a, a, you know, where do I go? Where right, do I right. Do? So I'm asking you that question, so you know, we can pull this and and put it out there. Just this particular clip, like, what can yeah. people do if they see something? That's a great question. I actually am hoping to do um, some sort of a seminar to provide some more resources to people because I get that question all of the time. And surprisingly, it isn't as easy to access that information as most people would think. So um, 
it seems silly, but sometimes a simple Google search for, um, for example, say duck rescue near me, it'll usually generate some initial responses. And I always tell people, reach out to them. If they can't help you, they should be able to refer you. But um, in terms of South Florida, we've got the amazing Pelican Harbor Seabird Station for native wildlife. Um, we take in everybody from pelicans, squirrels, opossums, even some different turtle species. Um, South Florida Wildlife Center in Fort Lauderdale takes in non-native and native wildlife species. Um, duck Haven for ducks like Muscovy ducks that um, sometimes aren't accepted by these other rehabs because they're non-natives and they... Um, you know, sometimes people are unwilling to help animals just because of their species, going back to that speciesism. Um, and there's also legal repercussions for taking some of them in. So you have to be um, careful with where you are taking them because not everybody can take those animals. And we often have people who are good Samaritans, they're bringing animals overnight and they drop them off and we can't always accept them. So then it makes our jobs harder because we have to find a new place for them to go. So definitely looking further into these things like you were saying. Um, for cats and dogs, any local shelter or reaching out to a rescue, there's some amazing Facebook groups. Miami-Dade Community Cats is one with over 3,400 members in it. Um, you post the animals in there and there's a great group of rescuers that are willing to help. Checking Facebook, um, different resources like that. For kitten stuff, Kitten Lady, an amazing rescuer. She has videos on how to stimulate a kitten to go poop. Like anything you can think of, there's so many resources with YouTube nowadays. So it's amazing. Wait, I'm sorry. You have to stimulate a kitten to poop? Don't do that Yes. So for the first few weeks of their life, um, when you're bottle feeding them, their mom typically stimulates them by licking them after they eat and before they eat to go to the bathroom. So when you have a neonatal kitten who's incapable of actually going to the bathroom by themselves, you have to take like a warm compress and stimulate their genitals until they go to the bathroom. Okay. But a lot, there's a lot of questions, right? Because, yeah. and every animal is so unique. So like I do a lot of wild animal stuff and kitten stuff, but let's say puppies, for example, I've rescued some puppies, but I'm not a puppy expert by any means. So there's always times where I'm going to reference different um, blogs or YouTube videos. Your best friend is YouTube and blogs. It's amazing the resources that are available nowadays. Well, there you go. For the ones who are like me, who are like cats <laughs> and really don't have cats. Now you learn something new. And uh, this is going to be um, probably the second to last question. Okay. And this wasn't uh, one of the previous questions. Okay. Put another one out there because it's out of curiosity. Um, so, invasive species. Okay. Good Pyth question. The pythons, the, the what? The iguanas. Yeah. The one tiger. It's, whatever. Fill in the blank. Invasive species. You okay. Know yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts? Good question. Also controversial. I like it. Um, I've gotten this question before, and my response is always, one, pretty much every invasive species is a human-caused problem, right? So we always have this cavalier attitude where they're invasive and we're going to kill them because they don't belong here. Well, first off, we need to take a step back because we brought the issue here, the issue. Um, Usually killing invasive species is actually not productive to reducing their population unless it's a very targeted effort. Um, and it's obviously not a humane way to deal with them. So I would always look into alternative um, options such as sterilization procedures, relocation. A lot of people aren't willing to do that because it comes with a higher cost than it does to just kill them. Um, but I'm definitely not pro-eradicating invasives and I know that that's probably it is a very different stance than most of my colleagues would take on it because as a biologist, it's they're affecting the natural world. And I always think, well, what's the number one most invasive species on the planet? Us. We are. And we've created all this turmoil in the natural world and these ecosystem imbalances. So I think we need to be more innovative and we need to be more compassionate to find ulterior methods to deal with them. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the latest projects or what are you going to get into? Sure. So I just moved to this area. Yay. <laughs> so that was consuming a little bit of my time, but um, I am we're hoping on getting my 501c3 status soon. So I'll be able to help more animals in need. Um, I'll be able to get more funding to do that and expand the type of animals that I help. 
Um, in the next couple weeks, I'm going to be driving up a van full of cats and kittens to the Northeast where they will go to their forever homes in partner rescues. So I've got that to look forward to. I've got a bunch of kittens. Road in, trip. Road trip in the cold with a bunch of cats. It's going to be fun. Um, <laughs> By so, yourself? With a friend. Okay. So that'll be interesting. We're going to find them some great homes up there. Um, and then, yeah. <laughs> you would probably go into anaphylactic shock if you wrote up. Yes, I get very swollen. My eyes don't stop watering, and there's like a lot of mucus coming out. And <laughs> Sounds really glamorous. <laughs> you do have to drive a van full of dogs. All right, I'll keep that. you in mind. All right. That's exciting. Wow. Yeah. Where can people find more? How can, how can they support you? Sure. Um, so I'm on Instagram, ethically underscore Elizabeth, and then I've got my inactive foster page, which I need to get back on. It's Foster Cats of Miami, which I probably will have to change to Foster Cats of Fort Lauderdale. Um, and I am working on publishing my website, so you'll be able to find more information about that. Um, and I'm Liz Jones on Facebook. But stay tuned. We're still working in the Bahamas. Um, I actually just dropped off a shipment of neonatal kitten supplies earlier to go on a flight there. Um, so we have some partner projects around. We're going to be doing a spay and neuter clinic in Nicaragua in February. Um, so definitely a lot of exciting projects going on. And if people want to give financial support? Yeah, so you can go to my Instagram, ethically underscore Elizabeth, and I've got a link in the bio, and there's a few different options for you. Awesome. Thanks, well, guys. I had a great time. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you, guys. I really had a great time being here. Appreciate it. Remember, if you're going to go ahead and do activism, make sure that you familiarize yourself, do your research. Don't be stupid. Totally. And also, look into the historical context. I always tell people to... Think about the efficacy of actions because just going out there and doing it doesn't mean that it's being effective. So we always have to be smart and uh, you know think about new progressive ways we can help the animals, right? Ladies and gentlemen, Liz Jones. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You are listening to the SoFlo Vegans podcast. We want to thank you so much for listening to the SoFlo Vegans podcast. Thank Liz Jones for being a guest on our show, and of course, thank our sponsors. Plant Chicks and Leaves and Roots. Leaves and Roots were really gracious in allowing us to record that episode with Liz Jones. So if you out have a really cool venue and you want us to host one of our podcasts, just reach out to us. Contact at SoFloVegans.com. Also, if you have any questions, you want to partner up with us, that's a good way to connect with us. And if you want to join our community, go to SoFloVegans.com slash community. You can see all the ways you can support us so we can continue making content that helps make South Florida a global hotspot for veganism. So with that being said, we can't wait for you to join us to listen to our next episode. We release every Friday and we'll see you next time. I'm Marcia Prince. I'm Jackie Tarleton. And we are the Plant Chicks. Are you ready to get off those crazy fad diets and on a sustainable lifestyle? Are you ready to gain energy, reduce inflammation, and think more clearly? Well, we've got the plan for you. We have whole food plant-based recipes, grocery lists, workouts for every fitness level, and of course, two awesome coaches. If you want to lead a whole food vegan lifestyle, then take the 30-Day Plant Chicks Challenge. 